0: Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week we talked about the saintly queens, Clothild and Radagund. Our exploration of their use of soft power and the impressive amount of influence they exerted in the realm was a nice break from all of the murder and war. Anyway, this week is going to be all about murder and war. We're about to meet The Wives and Sons of Clothar in Episode 10, Family Matters In some ways, the early Merovingian period is a story of escalating violence. The Sons of Clovis took a while to ramp up to their more heinous acts, and didn't openly attack one another until the death of Theoderic in 534. The Sons of Clothar, on the other hand, would hit the ground running. Or stabbing, I guess. The four sons who would succeed their father, Charibird, Guntram, Sigebert, and Chilperic, would come to blows immediately after their father's death, fighting for their pieces of his kingdom. There was one son, however, that couldn't even wait that long. Before we get to them, though, we must first discuss their mothers. With Clothar and his sons, our sources begin a shift. We knew basically nothing about Childeric, only the main events for Clovis, and a fair amount about his sons. With the sons of Clothar, however, we are getting into the period where Gregory, our main source, is alive. Gregory was in the midst of the mess of politics in Francia, and thus we get far more detail. Reflecting this shift... We're going to split this episode in two and take our time in unravelling the complicated situation in the court of Clothar. In the first half, we will discuss his wives and their backgrounds, seeing some of the desperate competition that occurs when queens aren't able to rise above it all like Clothilt or Radagund. Then, we're going to look at their sons, where they stood, And why one of them felt the need to risk it all by defying his father the stories of the wives of clothar are both engaging and politically crucial in this period clothar had some trouble with the ladies most of the trouble was probably because he couldn't keep his hands off of them and couldn't keep them or himself happy when he had them now i know what you're thinking The child-murdering sociopath wasn't a good husband, and I know, I was surprised too. But let's introduce his unlucky brides and take a peek at Clothar's rather unique approach to romance. Getting us started is Gunthiuk. She is not all that important to our story, because she and Clothar don't seem to have had any surviving children, but I thought it best to start with her, just to give us a quick reminder of what kind of man Clothar really is. I say this because Gunthiuk was the wife of his brother, Clodimer. Remember in episode 8 when Clothar seized his grandnephew Theudibald's bride and wouldn't let her out of his bed until a group of clergymen forced him to? Well, apparently, lust for a dead relative's wife was a bit of a kink of his, because he did exactly the same thing upon the death of his brother, Clodimer. might also have been the granddaughter of the Burgundian king Godgesil, the same one who tried to scheme with Clovis. This gave first Clodimer, then Clothar a claim to Burgundian lands, and Gunthiuk, a front row seat as her first husband, tried and her second succeeded in killing her family and ravaging her homeland. And the sons of Clodomer that Clothar had murdered by his own hand? Yep, you guessed it, those were Gunthiuk's sons too. Next up is Radagund. We don't have to spend long on her as we covered most of her story last week. Unlike the other wives, she was able to escape and she never bore Clothar any children despite 10 years of marriage, so she was also able to rise above most of the political manoeuvring. She was a wife of Clothar and a Merovingian queen, but her position was above those who had to fight for their place in Clothar's bed. Now for the important ones. First up is Ingund. Ingund appears to have been the handmaid of one of his previous wives, but Clothar took a liking to her and married her as well. Putting aside one of your wives for a pretty girl you've seen around the castle was so common it doesn't even merit a scandal in Clothar's court. Ingund and Clothar had a rocky relationship, as we'll see in a moment, but it was a productive one. She appears to have had six children with the king. Two of the sons died before their father, but that still left three future kings Charibert, Guntrim, Sigebert, and a daughter, Clothsund. This means, of the four kings who succeeded Clothar, three were sons of Ingund. Will this become important? Yes, yes, it will. Anyway, for a while things seemed to have been stable in Clothar's court. He was more or less focused on Ingund, and she was producing viable heirs for him. Less than romantic perhaps, but probably about as good as one could hope for with Clothar. But a problem soon arose. Ingund approached her husband and made a simple request. Her sister, Aragund, was young and pretty and England wanted to ensure that she received a good husband. Knowing that the backing of the king could secure a much more prestigious match, she asked Clothar to find a, quote, "...competent and wealthy husband," end quote, for Aragund. Gregory's description of the following events is not exactly pleasant. Clothar seems to have stood there for a moment. Well, my wife Ingund is pretty that's why I married her. But this means her sister must be even more beautiful, he thought to himself. Then he left. Driven mad by lust at the idea that his wife's sister might be more attractive than his wife, he hopped on a horse and rode to the villa where his young sister-in-law was staying. Seeing her seems to have confirmed his suspicions because he married her right there and then and immediately took her to the bedchamber. Once he was done, he returned to England at the palace. Gregory then records what he apparently said to her. <clears throat> I have done my best to reward you for the sweet request which you put to me. I have looked everywhere for a wealthy and wise husband whom I could marry to your sister, but I could find no one more eligible than myself. You must know then that I myself have married her. I am sure that this will not displease you what a charmer, am I right? Now, Ingund responded calmly, asking only that she also retain her husband's good favour. And this is where the story goes from gross to interesting. Ingund's response shows her understanding of the precarious position she was now in. She knew that her prime position in the kingdom depended upon her proximity to Clothar, which is why she didn't object and instead chose to both flatter and soothe him. She also knew that if her sister kept his attention and had an heir, her son's prospects would decline rapidly. It is this reason why the wives of Clothar are so important. The coming civil war would break down entirely along familial lines, as half-brothers faced off against half-brothers. Ingund and Aragund may have been sisters, but their blood ties apparently meant little as they each took to scheming and manoeuvring so that their sons would be in prime positions to inherit. But there was one more wife of Clothar. Chunsina is the one we know the least about and appears to have been the least important. Aragund had the youngest heir and currently held the king's attention, and Ingund had the most heirs and thus still held a prominent position in court, but Chunsina seems to have been put aside. Due to the dominant position of the two sisters, their sons were well placed to inherit, but Chunsina's poor position at court meant only danger for her son, Cram Clothald had proven the importance the position of Dowager Queen could hold, and Clothar, Childebert, and Theudebert had shown that force was now a legitimate option in solving succession disputes. Cram was not stupid. In fact, he must have been fairly capable, as it seems Clothar entrusted him with the rule of the city of Clermont-Ferrand. Cram saw the writing on the wall. Theudibald had just died, and Clothar had muscled Childebert out, proving that the majority of the kingdom was under Clothar's control. If Clothar were to die a succession war would inevitably break out. Ingood's sons would band together and face off against Aragund and her son Chilperic, who would have at least some of the support of Clothar's allies, and likely his treasury. How would Crom compete? He would be brushed aside, just like the sons of Clodomer. It is perhaps for this reason Kram began meddling in the political affairs of Clermont. Perhaps he wished to build himself a base of support in the area, from which he might support a bid for the throne. Unfortunately, it does not seem he was particularly successful in his endeavours. Gregory records an awful picture of Kram as a greedy, perverted, aggressive moron, but we can safely assume that a lot of this is biased due to Gregory's relationships with the sons of Ingund. Most likely, the stories of Cram's extravagance and debauchery are either fictitious or heavily exaggerated, especially the one where he suddenly becomes ill and all of his hair falls out. But it does seem like he rubbed the people and the aristocracy of Clermont the wrong way. He seems to have gotten himself tangled in unsuccessful plots, both with the local bishop's appointment and the local power of landowners, with his attempts looking an awful lot like someone who is trying to install puppets and centralise power. At this time, Clothar was busy taking over the lands of the recently deceased Ceutabold, sleeping with his widow, and fighting off the Saxon raiders, not necessarily in that order. However, he took the time to reverse one of Cram's own decisions, which never bodes well for a young vulnerable prince. With his authority undermined and his position tenuous in Clermont, he left and took up residence in Poitiers. Once there, he appears to have resolved himself to take action now rather than waiting for his father to die and losing the ensuing conflict. So he was going to stab his father in the back, but he would need help to do so. He needed an ally. Can you guess who he might turn to for help in betraying Clothar? That's right, Childebert. Ancient, made almost irrelevant by Clothar's success, but still alive and still ruling from Paris. In Gregory's words, they sent secret messengers to each other and conspired together and plotted against Clothar. Childebert seems to have forgotten that every time he conspired against Clothar, he came off worse in the end. Well said, Gregory. Anyway, it appears Childebert encouraged Cram to rebel, but took no immediate steps to actually support him, or overtly link himself to his rebellious nephew in any way that Clothar might have been able to prove. Classic Childebert. So, now believing he finally had a powerful ally, Cram raised an army and moved to the Limousin region. There... He announced his rebellion and began carving out an independent kingdom for himself. Clothar was still busy fighting Saxons, who were also potentially being supported by Childebert, and didn't seem to have a strong grasp on what exactly was happening with Cram. So, he sent two of the sons of England, Charibert and Guntram, to find out what was going on with Cram and resolve the situation. They went first to Clermont-Ferrand, and were apparently surprised to find out Cram was not there, showing just how poor their information was. They then proceeded on to Limousin, and confronted Cram's army which was camped on a hill called Negremont. Cram had a strong defensive position and so the two brothers sent their rebellious half-brother a message instructing him to give back all of his stolen lands and submit to Clothar or else come down and fight them. Crum, from his position up on the hill, refused, and instead offered to submit himself to Clothar if he was allowed to keep all of the lands he had conquered. Now, rebelling early to ensure your place in the succession is a bit of a time-honoured tradition in history. The Romans had done it, Caracalla had tried to murder his father so that he could cut his brother out of the inheritance, and it would be rife in the medieval period as well. None other than Richard the Lionheart would launch multiple rebellions against his own father to ensure his position. Clothar was not a forgiving man, but there was definitely a chance he could have been fine with this arrangement. If he had been planning to split up his kingdom after his death, then this wouldn't be all that problematic. But, unfortunately for Crum. Clothar had dispatched two of Kram's direct rivals for power. Charibert and Guntram knew that conflict was inevitable, and here they had a golden opportunity to dispatch one of their rivals. So, they promptly refused Kram's peace offer and prepared for battle. The following events are a bit muddled. We'll start with Gregory's account, but keep in mind that he and Guntram would later be political allies and he held the future king in high regard. Gregory claims that the two armies faced off, but a storm interrupted the battle. Then, during the night, Cram had a messenger dispatched that faked a report telling the two brothers that Clothar had died. From there, he chased them as they retreated and eventually seized a large chunk of central France and pushed into Burgundy. He then went to Paris and finally obtained Childebert's full support. The aging king, apparently believing Cram's lie that his father was dead, marched into the vicinity of Hrem, and began seizing the valuable lands of the area. But, as you might have guessed, this account doesn't fit particularly well. Why would Cram come down off the hill and face the two princes in open battle? Why would Charibert and Guntram leave after a single messenger told them that Clothar was dead? Even if he was dead, why not take the opportunity to remove Kram and seize Le for themselves? The only two truly believable parts of the story are Charibert and Guntram's military incompetence. Guntram would later receive a rare piece of criticism from Gregory for his later military failures, and Childebert only daring to fight once he thought Clothar was already dead. A more likely account has Charibert and Guntram being defeated by Cram, possibly because they tried to storm his superior position on the hill, then running as he pursued them. This makes a lot of sense, not only because they would later prove not to be military men, but also because it explains how Cram managed to seize a large swath of territory so quickly. The clergy and aristocracy of the period were famously fickle, and everyone had been waiting for years for the remaining sons of Clovis to die. If Cram had managed to convince them Clothar was dead, he had obtained Childebert's support, and the civil war had already started, they might have been easily convinced to throw their lot in with him. After all, he seemed to be winning. But, alas, this rapid success would not last. Two things ruined Kram's plans. First. Childebert died, both robbing him of his biggest ally and a big chunk of legitimacy. Second, Clothar was not dead, and Cram's support seems to have melted away once the old king returned from campaign and began seizing his brother Childebert's lands. While in Paris, sorting through his brother's possessions, Clothar called for Cram to appear before him. Now, Cram had definitely gone too far. But he didn't really have much of a choice but to obey. If he had tried to run, he'd never recover his position and his reputation and likely wouldn't get that far. So, in a surprisingly brave move, he went to Paris and appeared before his father. We do not know what was said during this audience, but Kram walked out unscathed. For whatever reason, His normally bloodthirsty father had let him live, at least for the moment. But Kram was not happy. He may have survived, but it was clear he was in an even worse position than he had been before. His father may be willing to let him live, but for how long? He had already proven himself a danger, and with Ingund and Aragund whispering in Clothar's ears every night, It was probably only a matter of time before he met his end. So, like most people placed in desperate situation, he made a rash choice. From our positions of hindsight, we might have told Kram to keep his head down. Maybe try and build back some trust with his father. Maybe try and ally himself to one of the competing queens. Maybe just give up and go become a monk. All superior options to what he ended up doing. Cram, once again, decided to risk it all and rebel. Knowing he had exhausted all of his options in Frankish lands, he fled to Brittany and enlisted the support of local Bretons. Their leader, a man named Charno, agreed to support him and together they began to build an army. The Bretons were now firmly entrenched on the peninsula and the Franks had never really succeeded in subduing them fully, settling instead for a sort of informal overlordship. Charno's decision to aid Cram may have been a big risk, but if successful, likely would have ensured the Bretons' independence and maybe even allowed for the annexation of valuable lands along the coast or along the Loire. We don't know what Cram promised him, but either way, it would all come to naught. Their army was soon confronted by a furious Clothar, and his army crushed them completely. Charno died as he tried to flee, hacked down by the victorious Frankish troops. Kram had prepared ships to ferry him to safety if things went wrong, but was delayed as he stopped to rescue his wife and children. They were caught by Clothar's men who brought the king news that they had captured his son and his family. Clothar, true to form, ordered them all burnt alive. The Frankish soldiers put Cram and his family in a nearby wooden hut. Either in pity or in anger, the soldiers held the would-be king down on a bench and strangled him to death with a piece of cloth as his wife and children watched on. They then left. Lock the doors and burn the place to the ground. Nothing was left but ashes. This was the final act of cruelty in the life of Clothar. It was not exactly out of character, but it appears to have affected him more than any before it. He would only live for another year and would spend most of it on a pilgrimage to the tomb of St. Martin in Tours, which he showered with gifts. Apparently aware of his own sins, he begged the saint to help him gain God's indulgence for all of the evil things that he had done in his life, and they were many. He then took ill after a hunting trip and died. His last words, as if to undermine this late burst of piety, were, Well, would you believe it? What manner of king can be in charge of heaven if he is prepared to finish off great monarchs like me in this fashion? arrogant to the end. In case it hasn't become clear, Clothar was not a good man. I believe his lesson is an important one for Merovingian history. The chroniclers, especially Gregory, try to twist and shift the narrative to make it seem like good moral men win while the evil ones only suffer and die. This is not true. The long reign of Clothar shows that the most evil brutal men often won the good ones sometimes lost there were no rules better men would eventually prosper but so would plenty of bad ones too nothing was destined to happen the period is one of power and a general lack of traditions and rules honor meant little and chivalry nothing only those who could survive in this unstable and dangerous realm would prosper after Clothar's death, the realm would immediately fall into chaos, just as everyone had known it would. With Kram gone, there were no other threats. Aragund and her young son Chilperic would face off against Ingund and her sons Charibert, Guntram, and Sigebert. But we'll leave that for next week. See you then!